0: If you'll turn in the scripture to uh, 1 John, First epistle, epistle of John in chapter uh, 2, I want to read again, I say again because we read this last Sunday as well, but um, 1 John in chapter 2, verses 15 uh, through 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, you'll also find it written in, uh, in your bulletins. Before I read it, let's please pray again with me. Father, we come to the scripture now and this is your word we pray that you would use it to shape us to form us to build us up to attract us to captivate us by who you are so that our affections for you would simply grow and grow and grow and that we would not be distracted by the glory of anyone but you Be with us now I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. First John chapter two verse fifteen. This is the word of the Lord. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. John, now, we need to remember is speaking to the church, speaking to Christians when he says, don't love the world. And he no doubt says that because he sees believers loving the world and as in all the admonitions of Scripture comes to us. We're to hear it. It's a means of grace to us, to enable us really um, to keep from loving uh, the world. John's just given assurance to this church, to these believers. He's given assurance to all of these believers. He refers to them as children, just simply meaning children of God, I suppose. But he reminds them of what's already true in them. And we need to hear that before we hear this warning. Uh, What he says to them is that it's already true that your sins are forgiven. And they're forgiven because Jesus has made propitiation for our sins, he's died for our sins, he's paid the penalty for our sins. And as believers in Jesus, he says your sins are forgiven. And he says this too. He says, you know the father. You know him. You're his child. He has dealings with you as a, as a father to a child, as the perfect father to rather imperfect children. But his dealings with you and you know him. You belong to him. He cares for you. He loves you. Um, that passage I read this morning to give us assurance. If God is for you, who can be against you? That's the sense of it. You know the Father. He is nurturing his protection, his kindness, his grace, his compassion, even his discipline, but still, God is for you. Who can be against you? And then he, he speaks to young men, young women too, I suspect, but those who are in the very throes of the Christian life. And he says to them, This is true of you. You're strong. And you're strong because the word of God abides in you. Because you're strong and the word of God abides in you, you've overcome the evil one, don't be afraid. He can't destroy you, you've overcome him. Because Jesus has overcome him and you're in him. Thus you're strong, his word abides in you. Fathers, those who are mature, he says, you have great assurance. You can rest assured, you know this. uh, Your assurance is solid because you've known him who is from the beginning. And so now he says, here's how you're supposed to live. Given that that's true of you, here's how you're to live. Don't love the world. Now last Sunday, we spent a great deal of time talking about this word, world. It's important in the New Testament. It's important uh, to John. It doesn't mean, in this sense, it doesn't mean the created universe. We're to love God's creation, its beauty, and, and all the great gifts that he gives us that he's made, our, our families and our, our friendships. He's not saying don't, don't, don't love your city or don't love your country or don't love your university or your school or, or, or your parents or your children. Don't, don't, he's not saying that, but, but he's saying there's something about this world and when he uses the word world in this sense, as John does, he's talking about a mindset, an attitude that's contrary to God, that has values and purposes and principles uh, that, are, that are contrary to the things of, of God. For me, in my mind, I like to think of it like this, that God is the one who defines us. That is to say, since he made us and we're his, uh, we're to look to him and we're to ask him the question, who am I and why am I here? And listen to his answer that defines who we are and that enables us to know our purpose. And then God is the one who directs us. That we look to him and we say, given who I am, given who you've made me to be, given the purpose that I have, how now am I supposed to live? And then you see, as human beings created by God, defined by him, directed by him, we're to take delight in how he defines and directs our lives. We're to worship him. That's who God is, the one who defines, the one who directs, and the one in whom we're to delight. Now, the world has a different God. Satan is described as the God of this world but he has worked in such a way that we think that we're the gods of this world. You see, the world is that which is governed, at least we think so, by us, by ourselves, we're the measure of all things. We come to the table defining who we are, seeking out our own purpose contrary to that of God's. That is to glorify ourselves, not to glorify him. And how then do we direct ourselves in the midst of that? And we take delight in ourselves and all that we are and all that we've done. That's the very sense of the world. We, we mentioned last Sunday, that it began right in the Garden of Eden when the tempter came to, to Eve and said, did God really say, putting that sense of doubt in her own mind, did he really say, is this really who you are, how you're to live? Um, and then this word, if you eat of this tree, you can be like God. Thus we see then human beings thinking themselves to be God. I think I'm the one who defines my life and directs my life and I can take delight in that. I worship the shrine of my own image. We see it and that's this sense of world. So John says don't love the world. It's passing away, it can't satisfy your desires. And not only that, um, but if you love it, you can't love God. You can't really be a Christian. So now he gets in a little bit more detail. And he says, uh, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And here he goes, for all that's in the world. And it's, here's the characteristics of what's in the world. Uh, one translation puts it, uh, here's what those who love the world do. Here's what those who love the world do. He says, if anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and notice he lays out three, um, three points here, three characteristics of this world, um, and they overlap. They're distinct, but they overlap. They feed one to another. Uh, he says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. These two desires, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. Uh, When he talks about the desires of the flesh, he means in some sense the desires of the body. But when the New Testament uses this word flesh, it often refers to this sinfulness in us, this sinful nature in us, this inclination to go against, to go against God. And then the desires of the eyes. Now, desires in and of themselves aren't bad things. We desire a lot of things that are very good and should desire things that are good. We desire beauty. We desire fellowship and friendship and relationship and and uh, and 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 uh, good work, for instance. We desire being productive. We desire to love another. To be loved by another, we desire. Um, but when these desires Become lusts, when these desires become inordinate, when these desires become controlling, that's when the problem starts, you see. That when these desires define us, and if these desires aren't met then we have no life, ah, then that becomes the difficulty. When these desires become the ultimate for us, when they take the place of God in our lives and we say, I must have that. Then you see Jesus said, oh, you're loving. You're loving the world. You're to love God and do his will. These desires are getting in the way of that. They've become ultimate for you, ultimate in, in your life. Uh, if we go back to Eve, even as, as she, the lust of the eyes, she looked at the fruit and saw that it was a delight to her eyes. Uh, you remember Achan? Is that name ring a bell to you in the Old Testament? In uh, The days of Joshua? Uh, the battle of Jericho and the command was um, to destroy but to take the gold and silver and retain it for the treasury of God and Achan didn't he took it for himself and when Joshua came to him under the command of God to come to him he said but I, I saw it can you relate to the lust of the eyes things that you see, you say, I won't be happy till I get that. <laughs> and if I never get it, I, I won't be happy. I've got to have that. And uh, the controlling interest in your own life and how that can distract you even from the things of God, the lust of the flesh. You Remember that the apostle Paul speaks of the lust of the flesh in Galatians in chapter 5, in verse 16. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit's. you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. See, they're opposite. They're against one another. The desires of the flesh, sinfulness. The desires of the spirit, the things that are good, the things that are of God. And then notice how, how the apostle lays this out. He says, for the desires of the flesh, same expression that John uses when he says, the love of the world is this desire of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do but if you're led by the spirit you're not under the law now the works of the flesh are evident and notice how he lays these out the works of the flesh are evident uh, self, uh, sexual immorality impurity sensuality all of those have a sense of sexual sin, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, this sensuality, this that there are no rules that govern me. I, I just have an appetite and, and I, I need to fulfill this appetite for, for sexual satisfaction, sexual fulfillment. And it's as if. Um, It's as if the apostle is reading our news feeds at this point. It's it's as if he's looking at our world and saying, "I, I, I see in the life of human beings in 2020 that these sexual appetites are now said to define you and to direct how you're to live, even to the point that you think that you can reassign your own sex whether to be male or female, or to marry someone of the same sex. And then that becomes your identity. That becomes what defines you and directs you in your life, and you can have no happiness. You think apart apart from that, he says, no, 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 no. That's the love of the world, you see. That's where that leads, when you love the world and not the will of God. Idolatry, That's the very heart of this, isn't it? That there's other things that take the place of God, even your own passions. Sorcery. Uh, I don't know what you think of it. A picture comes to mind when you read the word sorcery. Um, and yes, the magical arts, if you will, but, but depending on a power other than God to define you and to direct you and to, and to, to, to satisfy your, your life, even chemicals in those days, drugs, and, and drugs in our days as well, sorcery. And then enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. If you love the world, that's what you'll see. And isn't that what we see in the world, in the world in which we live? Doesn't that describe what we read about every day? Enmity, strife, jealousy. It's of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. These things are not at all, you see, to be part of, of the church, not part of our lives. And so when we love the world, what happens is we see these things entering into even the community of believers in Jesus, even into, into churches. And, and, and we're seeing it uh, for whatever reason during this time. And we've been seeing it. I, I got a call this week, last week, Uh, from a young pastor in a different part of the country in a different denomination. Um, He's been pastoring just a few years and he has said to me, he says, is it always like this? And I knew exactly what what he was talking about because that's what pastors talk about these days. Divisions, dissensions, and all of that in the context of church life. And I was pleased to be able to say that to him, no, it isn't always like this. At least not in my, not in my experience. It isn't always like this. But you see, that's what happens when the world gets in us. We, we, we're worried about all kinds of the ways the world can get into church. And we go after the ones that we can see with our eyes. The sexual ones and all that. And, and we need to be on our guard. But we need to be on our guard here. This is the work of the flesh, not the work of the spirit. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like that, Paul says. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit not inherit the kingdom of, of God. Let's just take a minute and pray. "Father in heaven, please, I pray that you would work in our hearts that we might be worldly or known as such that we would not be driven by the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes but that we would be driven by a holy spirit given desire to please you to love what you love that we would be driven by a deep desire to know how you say we are to live and that we would live that way that that we are driven by a a deep desire to glorify you to reflect you that we would be driven by a, a, a deep, deep desire for you to be honored in our lives that we would live out the life that you've laid out for us as human beings that we would live as you've defined us that you, we would live as you direct us. And we would take delight in you. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Pride, you see this sense, not of the good kind of pride that we might think of, but the kind of pride that says I can do it alone, I can do it without God, that that I really am the center of my universe and all attention then needs to be on me. Pride is at the base of worldliness. It's the exaltation of self. Jonathan Edwards, that um, great uh, philosopher, theologian, pastor, put it like this. He said, pride is the worst viper in the heart. Leave it to Edwards. Pride is the worst viper in the heart. It lies lowest of all in the foundation, the whole building of sin, of all lusts. It's the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working. It is ready to mix with everything. Nothing is so hateful to God contrary to the spirit of the gospel are of so dangerous consequence. There's not one sin that does so much to let the devil into the hearts of the saints and to expose them to his delusions. You see, pride, is at the heart of it. So, So we talk about the lust of the flesh. We see how pride, the pride of life, gets into that. It says, oh, I must have it. You must see me. You must be impressed with me. I can do it. I don't need God. The lust of the eyes, how pride gets there too. C.S. Lewis, in a wonderful chapter in Mere Christianity on pride, concurs with Edwards putting it like this. He says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that or mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. Again, it's that characteristic of pride that says, I can, I can be like God. I don't need him in my life. Scripture says that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, you resist the proud because the proud person is the one I do not need you, God. I don't need you. I'm fine the way that I am. And thus, you see, the one who is, is proud is never really satisfied because it isn't merely that the proud person needs to have a lot. The proud person needs to simply have more, more than the other one, whatever that happens to be. And we can take pride and, and, and sufficiency, if you will, self-sufficiency, self-confidence, and all kinds of of all kinds of things. It could be our family or our family name or our nationality or the color of our skin, the wealth that we have or the amount of education that we have and where we got it and from whom. Um, It could be our our looks, our attractiveness. It could be our athletic ability. It could be all of these things that we we place our pride in. We say, that's who I am and, and that defines me and that's my life. That defines me and that's my life this sense of real pride, and it distracts us. It takes us away from the things of God. We we see the warning of it in a a very poignant passage in Deuteronomy and chapter 7, one that we've read over the years from time to time. Deuteronomy, excuse me, chapter 8 and verse 17. It's Moses, and he's instructing the, the people of Israel as they enter the land, and he says, "'Take care lest you forget the Lord your God.'" by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command uh, you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are full and have built houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents, uh, serpents and scorpions, and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you uh, to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. He may confirm his covenant that he swore with to, you, uh, to your fathers, as it is in this, as it is in this day. You see, we, we forget the Lord. And, and John knows that. He says, "So don't love the world, because here's what's in the world, the pride of life. You forget the Lord, you think it's all from you, and you think it's all for you. And that turns you in a way, and says, "Look at me." My father-in-law used to have a wonderful expression. And uh, he would go to a party with peers and business and otherwise and come back and uh, would say, how was the party? And he said, oh, it was just a gathering of see my, see my. And uh, and we can get into that. In church, we can get into that as well. When we have denominational meetings, uh, always careful not to brag on you too much. But that sense of see, that sense of, pride. We we know it, don't we? It's there. It's in us in all these days. The question, then, is how do we escape this? How do we escape the world? How do we escape, escape being of the world we're here in it it's before us all the time we know the inner passions that are sinful well we know we know the, the, the the outward things that we see and can so distract us and so attract our affections away from god and we know the pride of life we get all of that so the big question then comes how how is it that we that we deal with this how do we escape if you will the world how do we live not loving it well, let me just suggest this. Uh, first, to, to, to realize, as I mentioned at the outset this morning, what Paul has already said is, is true of them. He says, you're forgiven. Reflect upon that. How have you been forgiven? How, how did this forgiveness come? It came from the grace of God. It came from the goodness of God. It came through Christ, not from yourself. And we're to meditate upon that. And you see, as we meditate meditate upon that, that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. We think about that. That will generate in us an affection for him, you see. If God is for us, who can be against us? Just to meditate on that and to think upon that, of course. Jesus, you're already forgiven. You're you're forgiven. This is the gift of God. Realize it. Realize you needed forgiveness, and and now you are. Let that take you back. Let that enable you to understand your, your need for him. Without him, there's no forgiveness. There's only condemnation. But in him, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, you see. Think about that. Know that you're forgiven. Know that you know God, that you belong to him. Know that you're strong. Know that the word of God abides in you. Know that you've overcome the evil one. Know that you've known him who was from the beginning. This is who you are. In Jesus, something dramatic has happened. You've been changed. You are different. You needn't now love the world Its power over you has been broken. How's Paul put it? I've been crucified with Christ. But nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. This life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified to the world. A break has happened. So know that. Realize that. Think about that. Know that to be your identity. And then think this too. Paul says, listen, beware. If you love the world, the love of the Father isn't in you. You can't love the world and love God. And you go, but I do love God, but but I do love the world. So what does that do? Where do we go? Well, I think John would send you back to chapter 1. And he would say, now that you realize your love for the world, name it, confess it. Because if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is one of the ways that we escape the world is that we're aware of it. We're even aware of it in our own lives. We're aware of the love that we have for the world. And so he says, now, see it, name it, confess it, repent, pray, receive his forgiveness, ask for his help to really live. Know this too, that the world's passing away. As I mentioned last Sunday, if you hit your wagon to the world, you'll lose everything. You'll never be satisfied. In fact, even as a believer in this life, let me say this to you, and to me. That if we're loving the world, our Father who loves us won't let that continue. Our Father who's jealous for us will not let that continue. If you've been a Christian longer than a while and you talk to a Christian who's been a believer longer than a while, you'll hear stories of how God has intervened in life through circumstances or otherwise to draw our attention to the love of the world and how unsatisfying the world is. The world's passing away, but if you do the will of God, you'll be satisfied forever. You see, He'll will satisfy the deepest, deepest longings of our hearts. And then this too—I ask myself from time to time: What motivates me? Really, Bill, is it the glory of God or is it the glory of yourself? What really motivates you in these actions as I'm doing this or that or I, I'm, whatever it is? I ask myself that question. I ask myself this question too. I ask myself this question. What captivates my attention? What, what entertains me? Because you see, uh, the world can entice us in certain ways. And, and I remember Jerry Bridges and I had some wonderful conversations about this. So I smile when I think of it. But we talked about vicarious sinning. That I know that I can't be that kind of person who loves the world, who pursues the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. I know I can't be that person. But there are times when I admire them. And I sort of want to be like them. You watch yourself when you're, when you're watching a movie. Who, who, are the, who are the characters you're most attracted to? Who do you want to win in this? Sometimes it's the ones who are pursuing the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. What are we willing to overlook in, those, in, 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 in people, you see? And it captivates. Were there sports heroes who live with their girlfriends before they're married and do commercials? And we go, that's all right? Am I living something through them or politicians or business leaders or otherwise who live particular lives, do particular things, say particular things and say, I would never do that, I would never say that, but but but, but they captivate me. And I always ask myself that question, what, what entertains me? And, and I find myself being entertained often by that which is the wrong character And I have to catch myself to not sin, if you will, through them. And we need to be engaged, church. As we know, we say this often, in the ordinary means of grace. You need to be engaged in the world. How does Paul put it? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable. And perfect. The word of God is a two-edged sword. We need to be in the scriptures. If we're not, we'll be loving the world. We need to pray. You see, prayer, right prayer, is the admittance of need. It's the admittance that God is greater than I, that I worship him, and that I need. I need his grace to be at work in my life. You remember the parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the Pharisee prayed this arrogant prayer that wasn't a prayer at all. In fact, in, in one version of the scripture, it says he prayed thus to himself. He was praying about how good he was compared to everyone else, the pride of life. But then there was this tax collector who was clearly a sinner, a thief. He beat on his chest and he said, have mercy upon me, the sinner. Now Jesus asked a deep question. Which one of them went up justified? I could ask a lesser question. Which one of them had his prayers answered? And we need to pray. When we're praying, you see, really praying, we're far from the love of the world. And fellowship. I don't think I need to say how crucial it is for us. But there's one thing that God has taught us, at least me, through these last months, and that is how much we need to be together, how much we need to see each other as much as we can, even if we can only see a third of a face, even if we are a bit Far away from one another. I mean, let's face it, Christians throughout history have gone through a lot more difficulties than we are right now in seeing one another and being together and all of that. And even as we speak today, there are believers, I'm sure, in parts of the world that would find our complaining about how it is that we have to gather to be nonsense because of the difficulties they have in meeting together. But we know the need that we're not meant to be alone. We're meant to gather. We're meant to hear each other say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. We need to hear each other say that. I wonder if we're apart from each other long enough, if we'll forget that there's other people who actually believe that. We need to hear it together. We need to confess our sins together. we need to fellowship together and to love each other. That's why it's so gratifying that we're here today. Oh, some can't make it and some are live streaming and should, but it's so good to see Americans even sacrifice some to be together. I believe it's pleasing to the Lord. We need this each other because you see, when we're in the word and when we pray and when we're together, the Lord stirs up our affections towards Him and against the world. Uh, Thomas Chalmers uh, century or so ago preached a sermon uh, mid-19th century, preached a sermon called the expulsive power of a New Affection." I've quoted it before. the expulsive power of a new affection. It is that if, as new affections come in, uh, they uh, cast out old affections, right? It's actually a sermon on this text. He writes this. He says, we know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our heart than to keep in our hearts the love of God and no other way by which we can, to, no, other, no, I'm sorry, and no other way by which to keep our hearts in the love of God than building ourselves up on our most holy faith. And we build ourselves up on the most, our most holy faith we hear his word as we pray as we worship please let's not love the world or the things in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life if we do the love of the father isn't in us the world is passing away but if we love God do his will We'll, be, we'll abide forever. We'll be satisfied forever. Mm, let's pray. Father, be with us, even as we've prayed before, to keep us from the love of the world. Help us to, to love you, to, to live to glorify you, to look to you and, and not ourselves, not anyone else to define us and to direct us. And God, may our delight be in glorifying you in living out the life you have for us, the way you've defined us and direct us. So please be with us, I pray. Uh, Bless in the richest and deepest sense of that word, our church. God, continue uh, to help us during these difficult days uh, to love one another well, uh, to fellowship with one another as we have opportunity. And Father, use use these times together to strengthen us and fortify us in our walk with you and in our relationship with each other. And Father, as it's at times difficult to fellowship and perhaps times when we can't fellowship as we wish, that you would work in us a deep longing, a deep longing to have restored to us that which is difficult now and that which we can't achieve. So Father, I, I pray that you'd be with us. I'm thinking particularly even now for Patty Wilson, Patty Lang Wilson, that you'd be with her, the loss of her husband. With Mark and Lori as they ministered to her, I pray for her. Alistair and Sevia and Kristen family of Bev Homskog that you would be with them. Father I give you thanks for for Bev's life. She and Norm were so much the very heart and life of our church for so many years. She taught so many of us so much by her opening her Bible and sitting it on her lap and speaking to us through her prayers by the witness of her own life. So we thank you for saints like Bev. We pray that you would continue to raise up more like her among us and from us. But we give you thanks for her life and thanks for the glorious reunion she's having with Norman and and with our Lord Jesus. Hmm. Father, that's real life. Keep us from loving the world. Enable us to love you. And this I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.